evening and good screaming. Welcome to the premiere episode of Renegade Roundtable. And the perfect election expert and lots of other things. Well, he goes by many names. He's been known as Elaine, Alien, Buck Satan, Tuttle, Hypoluxa, and many more. And without further ado, I guess to start, here is Al Jorgensen. <laughs> Did you just have a nose job or something that uh, doesn't quite look like you? So uh, I don't know when that's coming off, but uh, here we go. It really is you. What a relief. Okay. Salvador Dali is kindred spirit, so I figured of course. on the premiere show, I would be my kindred spirit and bear all. And your kindred spirit isn't this painting behind you. Those eyes are coming through loud and clear on the visual side. Rasputin is behind him with his trademark mesmerizing eyes and all. So uh, anyway, what created you? <laughs> uh what created me? Let's see. That uh, in case you don't know, sex education—it's basically an egg and a sperm, uh, which happened in 1958 in Cuba between my mother and her high school friend, and then I came out. And uh, this guy—I don't know—I I think he went to jail, or my grandfather, my my mother's father. Ex- expelled him from the family. And so therefore I was left with a single 16 year old mother who uh, somehow tried to raise what she was given, <laughs> which is me, but that, yeah, that that's how I came here. I mean, I, I could go on about like how my buddy Rasputin like concocted me out of his mind and did some alchemy and made some, you know, kind of creature, but nah, nah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good with that. And this was in Havana, right? Havana, Cuba. Yes. And you had you were he had a different birth name. Yes, uh, Alejandro Ramiro Casas. Casas, not Rasas. Okay, I got that part wrong. This means house. So I'm of course, Al House. <laughs> Almost rhymes with outhouse. Right. <laughs> a lot of people would agree with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I forgot to mention that both of you and I share other names that are unprintable in a family newspaper. But yeah. um, at some point, your mother scooped you out up and got you out of Cuba. Yes, my whole family uh, left in 1960. Uh, I was about a year and a half, two years old. Uh to Miami, where all good Cubans go uh, to live out their lives. and uh, But then my grandfather uh, was also a, a scientist. And um, for better or worse, he pretty much pioneered the um, um, science on um, artificial cattle insemination. So he was a, he was a bull pimp. Okay, so he pimped out bull sperm to cattle to make uh, better tasting meat or something. And so they got wind that he had defected to uh, Miami. And so they got him to work for American Breeder Service in Madison, Wisconsin. And the closest major market was Chicago, which is how I wound up 
in Chicago for my 35 years of penance and the worst cold weather and wind that I've ever seen in my life. And so I lived there for a while, thanks to that. Of course. Yeah. What One story you told me before was the escape from Havana. You remember being on the plane. Yeah. Despite that was, how young you were. Yeah. That was my first memory. I was about two years old. And uh, my mother my and her brothers, my uncles, and my grandfather had already left, which left me with uh, my grandmother and my aunt. And uh, they got us on like... Basically now, you know, recollection speaking, uh, like just uh, a, a, a twin turbo, like kind of Cessna kind of thing, overloaded. Oh, really? Taking off the ground. I remember people screaming and uh, freaking out, you know, on the ride up there, uh, the 90 miles to uh, Miami. But, yeah, that's kind of a weird first memory that's ingrained it's just like people <laughs> screaming and freaking out so it kind of like got me ready for the rest of my next 64 years people just screaming <laughs> freaking out and including what you told me before was you were all excited and you got to go on an airplane and you were all happy and couldn't understand why everybody was crying and freaking out all around you yeah, exactly. I thought we were going to come right back to where we were at. And instead, we wound up this other place. Uh, right. So, uh, and, and I didn't speak English when I came here. So it was, uh, yeah, it was quite the shocker. I didn't speak English till I was about five or six years old. Right. Well, yeah. Did, when you went to kindergarten, did you know English at all or not? You must know. I, I knew bullies. I knew people that like, you know, oh, you, you know, spick this and that, you know, bam, bam, bam. A lot, lot of bullying, a lot of making fun of you because you didn't know the language and this and that. And so you had to learn kind of pretty quick, but you also learned about like uh, a lot of like, uh, uh, you know, societal tendencies within the new <laughs> living. Right. I always thought you were like, you know, athletic and strong and a baseball pitcher in high school. How could anybody bully you? Oh, no, no, no. When I first got here, I was a pampered you know, my, my, my parents in Cuba were one of the uh, elites, the ruling class. My grandfather was a scientist. We had a mansion. I mean, my only other very early memories was just having this huge courtyard in this mansion with this like custom like uh, kind of uh, horse that you rode and, and, and having servants and this and that. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And then I got here all like, you know plump and cozy and then just dealt with harsh reality and uh yeah so you had to grow up pretty quick but uh, no I, I did not come here with a silver spoon in my mouth that was taken <laughs> away the second i got onto that cessna with my grandmother and therefore you're on your own kid right the the the, the silver spoon didn't come again until a much smaller version entered the picture years later but we might get to that later but <laughs> well, that silver spoon was used for a far more you know nefarious purpose than exactly exactly um never saw one with you but of course we saw many other things but meanwhile okay you're in chicago and I'm assuming you had musical leanings and knew you had talent, or at least wanted to, and liked the kind of music that parents and teachers don't want you to like from a very early age. Or did you? Well, no, I didn't know I had 
talent at all at that point. Uh, I was still trying to figure out the language, let alone <laughs> culture. But um, I did know that I was really drawn towards um, um, rock music as opposed to like, for instance, I come from a classical family. Like my great uncle is Leo Brower, which famous classical guitar player. And that's that's what was played uh, around my household as I was growing up. And then there's the the Latin aspect, the Cuban aspect of my upbringing, which is all, all my relatives, like, you know, they, they played congas, we had backyard barbecues and did salsa, tango, this, that, blah, blah, blah. Wow. Um, but um, I, I really found myself um, appealing, uh, leaning towards the appeal of, of rock, like, uh, say, early Rolling Stones. December's Children was the first thing that I heard that just like went like, okay, this makes sense. And you were seven or eight or nine. What do you six, think? Five, six. Yeah. Because that came a little bit later, I think. I don't know exactly. I mean, I, I too, you know, age seven, second grade, 1965, my dad accidentally was trying to get me to go to sleep, left the AM radio on a rock station or, you know, a rock and roll station with Motown and all kinds of stuff. And then there was no stopping me. Leave it there, leave it there, leave it there. And I, too, gravitated. You know, obviously, the Beatles was the calling card to explain to others what I liked. But, um, you know, the, the, the early, early Stones and the great unacknowledged architect of American garage rock, Paul Revere and the Raiders, as well as in Denver, uh, KIMN, 95 Fabulous Kim, you know, that station, they played local bands. So the Moonrakers got plenty of airplay and they were pretty cool. And then, uh, you know, and, and many others like that. And yeah, then I was, just, I was hooked. You know, I loved Eric Burden and the Animals, and not just because his name was Eric, but they had such cool things. They're so good on Hullabaloo. Did you see Hullabaloo when you were a kid, that primetime TV show with all the rock stuff on it? No, no, I didn't. But I'm surprised that you immediately bit into hook, line, and sinker into the Beatles, because I was very suspect. I found that um, some of their melodies and all that stuff were, were, you know, what I grew up with, with like this classical thing. I, I thought they were like kind of like least or mozart like really pop melodies to make everyone feel good and i really enjoyed uh out of that british british invasion that came in the early 60s was the things that made you angry and uh apparently i was angry then and uh, <laughs> still angry now sort of kind of mellowed out but but yeah I, it took me a long time to appreciate the beatles and some of that early pop or that mercy beat stuff that came on that was very melodic i was more drawn into the the violence and the the loudness and 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 the um defiance yeah well, um, well, me, well me me too i was just you know the beatles was the reference to people like my grandmother or others well, and, you know in my little in my little pottery class i was called the beatles and i even made pottery beatles then just as a as a and, and also drew them in red crayon and gave it to my grandmother. And when she died, I got it back. And then when Yoko Ono wanted a little Memories of John thing for the book she put together, and I was the only person from our part of the scene asked at all, and I still am not quite sure why, but I wrote a little thing about my up and down relationship with the Beatles compared to the hard stuff. And that picture got in the book. 
complete complete with the peak keyboardist front and center because so many other bands on Hullabaloo had those Farfisa organs. Even then, I kind of knew what I wanted to be when I grew up, even though Batman hit a year later and I had this detour into, you know, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a baseball player. I want to be the Penguin. I want to be the Riddler. That Those are my role models. But then, you know, I, I disengaged from rock for a while and then started listening to it again. And the cast would have all changed. And Steppenwolf hit, Born to be Wild. And I loved that. <laughs> they were so badass looking on, on one of those afternoon TV shows that Paul Revere and the Raider has like, wow, this is so cool. Yeah, I mean, that was on in Chicago on uh, when mainstream radio had the top 40 and uh, and yeah, Steppenwolf, of course, was on there. But I I always thought they were kind of lame, too. There was a couple like, for instance, okay, at the same time, say uh, Born to be Wild. I was more into uh, Inagata de Vida or something, Iron Butterfly. Right, right. I'm saying it's not not like. Anything that was top 40, I, I pretty much had this like uh, aversion towards things that everyone else liked from a very early age because I didn't like the people that surrounded me, i.e. my family. Well, nobody surrounded me like Steppenwolf, including my elementary school friends at the time. And they were joined eventually in fifth grade by another big favorite at the time, a black soul singer named Credence Clearwater. Oh, well. <laughs> Do you calling him a black soul singer? Yeah, I didn't see a picture of a band with revival tacked on for at least a year. Well, this was this was what got me introduced to like Texas music to me. Um, uh, when I think of Texas, uh, you know, of course, ZZ Top, and and obviously, you know that I've worked with them and I'm friends with them, but. Right. To me, my original thing, and I didn't even know they were from California, that just sounded like Texas was Credence. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? It's just like that that kind of like Bayou uh, voice and that just kind of like fuck you in, in, in their chordal progressions. It was just like their chordal progressions were so simple but so violent that, yeah, of course I was into CCR, man. I and But I never had the, the mistake of thinking they were a black band. I, I kind of knew... Oh, no, a black person. A bl- yeah, I mean, you got to admit, you know, you see... I mean, I mean, you you see the other African American musician names and the football player names. Credence Clearwater would fit right in. Well, yeah, it sounds like almost Bayou stuff from Louisiana, like some Cajun kind of thing. Credence Clearwater. Uh, right, you know, right. Uh, yeah, but and then I found out, like I always thought, Doobie Brothers in the early days, uh, before they went. Mike McDonald started selling Pepsi or whatever he did. Uh, I thought they were a Texas band too. I was always drawn to this kind of like Texas defiant, independent streak of uh, of, of white people that sounded black. You know, well, I, but and th- this didn't sound black. But if it was that Texas already, did you cross paths with you know with your ears cross paths with the Thirteenth Floor Elevators? No, oh, Rocky, Rocky Erickson. No, 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 no. I, I, I never crossed paths with them. Uh, much to my chagrin, I would have loved to have hooked up with them at some point in my travels. But no, uh, absolutely brilliant. Um, you yeah, know, they didn't get airplay in Denver either, unless it was on Kim's rival KTLK, well, K- we, K- we Talk, which is one of the one I listened to. 
We were both in. That's Denver. a little bit later. That's a little bit later at like high school, right? right. Somewhere in there. Well, I was going to say we were both in Denver area around high school, so so we probably have the some of the same influences um, around that period, around like mid seventies to late seventies. So. Well, at some point. Uh, finally, a real record player and a receiver made its way into my parents' house. They still wouldn't <laughs> let me have my own. They knew what was going to happen if they did. I'd quit collecting Hot Wheels and start collecting records overnight, and that's exactly what happened. But they made me turn headphones on and sit there and listen. But quickly, I was exposed to FM radio. and This is the <laughs> radio station KBPI. We're going to play another cut from oh, the new cut. Eagles album. Oh, another cut? How about another whole side of an album? That was my They never cut. did that. They never did that. In, in Chicago, WXRT always played entire sides of albums like anything from yes to king crimson to pink floyd to whatever they played the entire side of the album and then they'd come on with this somnambulistic voice at the end and basically <laughs> make you feel like you've just done like 15 valiums four xanax and a shot of dope and you just felt great yeah, we, we didn't have access to any of those things except the radio. And the stuff that stood out, of course, was Smoke on the Water. Oh, my God, that's Deep Purple, who had that great Hush song years earlier. Oh, cool, cool. And, Le and Led, Led Zeppelin I knew and whatnot. And so, uh, and then one fine day after, for the first time ever, I'd bought an album just because a sitter of all people said, yeah, you should get into Alice Cooper. And I bought Killer. And then finally, oh, wow, rock music can have cool lyrics after all. I read Dead Babies in my eighth grade speech class as a poem, and the teacher liked it. And costumes and makeup, which I know. I didn't know that yet. No, but no, if you liked Alice Cooper, that must have influenced you. On just oh, like, hell yeah. I mean, then finally, and you saw this too, late night, Friday night, suddenly this show called In Concert comes on, where, oh, yeah. and I hadn't been exposed to that since Hullabaloo, or Paul River and the Raiders in the middle of the day years earlier. But the first thing on, first showing was Alice Cooper. On, yeah. You know, then they started with I'm I'm 18 and they still looked yeah. really raw. They played really raw. A lot of the props weren't there yet. And that rekindled like, OK, somehow I wish I could do this someday. This is me. And you did. Yeah, and, that came later. And baby, for the sake. Tell us about this as far as influences and all that shit. They 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 really didn't know or care about what they were influencing at the time. They were just doing what felt right for them. But right. they certainly and they were making a lot of money and they didn't mind. Right. But they've certainly come to know the influence that they had on so many bands and, and so many genres, not just bands, but genres. Oh yeah. I mean, I revisited Alice many, many years later after plastic surgery disasters. Ned Kennedy's album came out. And, you know, the, the, the B-side of plastic surgery borders on prog rock at times, as well as some of the better post-punk goth shit you'll ever hear from anybody, especially not connected with that scene, overtly. And then I finally realized when I heard, um, you know, Gutter Cat versus the Jets again on Schools Out, Oh, my God. I thought this was all all the classical music my parents listened to. A lot of it was this, too. Yeah, but tell me this, Jello. How, how did prog rock get such a bad reputation? 
It's like, well, well, number one, most people who were into it got into it through atrocities like Yes, who I still think is the worst band in the history of rock. The minute John Anderson opens his mouth, I flee the room hoping a car will run over me when I get to the street. And then um, and I and, and and some of the other big ones I never got that into either until a, a record collector guy I was introduced to took me over to his house and started me playing playing. Was pumping me with tie weed and everything, and playing other obscure things that I liked a lot more. Starting of all things with East of Eden, but quickly into kraut rocky things, other things. I'd already discovered Hawkwind and was totally into space ritual and everything else. But um, well, prog rock, prog rock. I quickly, I quickly had still have no use for the for the elfin stuff. But as soon as I played I played magma and understood it finally. I mean that uh, it was instantly one of my favorite bands and then when I got Mechanic Destructive Commander after first getting Coast for 10 cents then Mechanic Destructive Commander for 25, you know that was about what I got the Stooges and the MC5 for two or three years earlier that was life changing. But yeah. but anyway, but Ma- Mechanic Destructive Commander was like, "Oh my god." This reminds me of Carl Orff. I can even play this for my parents and we will agree on this band because I never stopped liking Carmina Burana. And the other big one that that crept kept up from the parents' classical and occasional Joan Baezzi or Pete Seeger stuff they played sometimes too was dad being Teo Anthropolog who interested in other cultures, he brought home a Japanese kabuki record when I was three or four. And then when I was a pothead later, I found it again and even had to do a record trade with my own father, Eric Satie for the Azuma Kabuki musicians into the back bedroom with my pot friends. It went, this sounds like kind of like Hawkwind. If only George Harrison got into this blah, blah, blah. And the, but the way that really creeps in is the original way a certain chorus came into my head, you know, Kabuki style, California, Uberalis, that kind of thing. So Kabuki crept in early to my my actual music as well. Very nice. As far as like Kabuki sounding like something else, I think uh, if Kabuki would have learned distortion, we would have a whole new genre of music. Well, now, you've you you've pioneered several others. Go to town. Well, I've, I've kind of dabbled in that. Uh, things like deity and stuff where we've taken a Kodo and just distorted the living hell out of it. And Yeah, to the point where I had no idea it was there. Uh, but either way, I know what you're saying. There's cross-pollinization of all sorts of things that, that float your boat that um, are, are sometimes you get the inspirations from the least unexpected places. Right. I mean, when I get to San Francisco later, you know, you know it, it, everything was very, very, very anti-hippie, even anti-60s and stuff, in part because the people who came from that generation, for the most part, were extremely hostile to the punk underground, you know, Bill Graham in particular. But we had a little support from people like Paul Kantner, but mostly, but I thought deep down, even though there's a line in California, Borales, the hippies won't come back you say mellow out or you will pay which my friend john greenway back in boulder actually wrote that in his original lyrics but anyway um but i never 
because the Hawkwind thing was still there. No holiday in Cambodia without Hawkwind. The other guys never did like them, but I, when Klaus was noodling around that bass riff, I thought, aha, space punk. Here we go. So, but, um, yeah, but, but I never, I never, I never regretted all. Go ahead. You understand why they were hostile? You're literally taking food out of their mouths. I mean, you're taking their money. Like you were. No, they, they had so much money and we had so little. Punk rock was the new golden, golden cow of San Francisco. Well, people thought so at one time, hippie but it wasn't. It used to be the golden cow. And they made so much money off hippie for so many years that, of course, there's going to be friction on that. I mean, that just well, makes sense. Well, in the case of Bill Graham, even a venue as small as the Mabuhay Gardens or the Paul Rat shows and rented halls, he wanted them gone because it wasn't controlled by him. I'm not kidding. He wanted a monopoly and he, you know, he yeah. was very monopolist, like right. Barry Fay in Denver, John Curd in London or whatever. Follow the money. That's not surprising, which is what I'm right. saying as far as like why you were met with resistance in San Francisco on punk rock and in a very usually ordinarily a very progressive, uh, uh, you know, condition. Uh, they they met with resistance against progressing even further because the money was there to keep the other as is status quo. Man, there's money there. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, you remember Bam Magazine as well as I do, and yeah. the same cast of characters and their friends were on the cover and everything for ages and ages and ages and ages and ages and ages. But more to the point, I was trying to get is. This, I think this is the case with you, too, is we both went through serious hippie phases, both for political and musical reasons. And even though when I was at UC Santa Cruz cranking the Sex Pistols with my dorm door open to annoy everyone, which it did, got out the scissors, cut off all my hippie hair, put it in a plastic bag, nailed it to the door. I still have the bag. And suddenly with the punk rock hair, I felt dangerous again. Just like when I was the first kid to grow my hair out in sixth grade, suddenly there was this certain thing that I really, really dug on top of all the cool music that fit my own taste like a glove after being so depressed that I missed the 60s, nothing for me, blah, 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 Ozzy, I'm coming to join you, whatever. But then, you know, the Ramones happened. And a certain Ramones show. We were at that show. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody knew you then. You were still what in high school in Frisco or going to U- University of Northern Colorado? Yeah, I was high school in Frisco. When I first saw the Ramones at Ebbets Field, there, if you remember, there wasn't very many people in the audience, and the audience was pretty much split up between hecklers and wax tracks people. Well, though, they're, 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 and the Boulder crew, too. And right. there was a lot of us there. The, you know, the ravers and the people who became the roadies, like me and Joseph Pope, who moved west and started Angst and all these other good things. But, yeah, the, the, uh, I, my memory is that the Glitterati and the Cocaine Cowboy industry people were there because there was a new band that they, they were all supposed to check out called Night City, which had Ray Manzarek and Nigel Harrison pre-Blondie. Pre- and, you know, it was not their finest hour. And the singer threw tantrums like crazy backstage. But anyway, but those people were all there, there and the guys had their their shades, Kenny Loggins hair and, and the corduroy jackets with the 
patches and they're they're women you know kind of uh you know had had the little had 20s do's and a flower because Joni mitchell had suddenly adopted that look and then these four degenerates in leather jackets come on one chord on johnny's guitar and we knew it was going to be way louder than we thought we were not allowed to stand up leave or dance no ins and outs so as they just blew the roof off the place and just uh, changed everybody's lives down front. It was partly fun looking at those people who had come for the other band in the back and how, no, no, stop, no, no, no more. Yes, yes, yes. That that was me. And then I went (laughs) to the front because I started out in the back, and after seeing that, I went to the front. And the thing that impressed me most was I'd never seen a band not have any kind of repartee with the audience, just strictly... (laughs) A, a really fascistic pacing of just like, boom, one, two, three, four, boom, one, two, three, four, bah. like nothing. There was one one re- remark from Joey though. This song is dedicated to you girls out there. Yeah, it's mean, called yeah. "I Want to Be Your Boyfriend," and that right. was the only thing between song banter at all. That changed my life. I mean, that that's like I still oh yeah. I have uh, I have a loathing towards bands that like want to like bare their souls and tell stories on stage about like why this song is written and 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 what got them to that point and blah 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 blah, blah. oh you've one, done two, that three, occasionally but... let's go one two three we all do but i'm saying for like i've seen bands that like do the whole thing and then throw in like 10 minute solos as well during a show so it becomes like this uh, masturbatory, narcissistic. Oh, I know. Well, that you know, that was what punk was always meant to get rid of and did a pretty good job, at least underground. I mean, I've been asked several times, one of the things I'm proud, oh yeah, I'm proud that I helped burn down the Hotel California. <laughs> it's still up, Jello. It's still there. Uh, <laughs> it's still there. or what? Toto yeah. Santos, it's but, still there. But, but and the the and then Joseph Pope, the future Joseph Pope, who always was a little more outgoing and hustly than me, comes back to where we're sitting in the front row. I was just backstage talking to the Ramones. What you can talk to a rock star? I'd never been to anything but arena shows, starting with Alice Cooper, actually. And so we all went backstage, and on top of everything else. They were really nice people and very friendly and just very encouraging. They knew what kind of seeds they were planting all over the country, and they never knew what they might what might happen with that crew, which would include, of course, the Wax Tracks label. The store was already there, and the Ramones went there. The original Wax Tracks store in Denver, but Jim and Danny then moved to Chicago, start the, start the label. Ministry comes out of there, Dead Kennedys angst the nails which is what the ravers became when they moved to new york and had that 88 lines about 44 women hit i'm still in touch with mark and everything and then um also uh oh i'm space it well don fleming was there he was stationed he was in the air force stationed at lowry air force base and um and, and you know, he later went went into Velvet Monkeys, gumball if you ever want to go see the lomax archives in new york alan lomax Go to Don Fleming. He's still at it, and he was at those shows and sent me pictures to prove it. Well, and yeah. on that on that note, at the time of that Ramones show, were you already out playing in bands or not? Uh, yes, I was in a cover band called Rain Slayer, which uh, we would do two sets a night at the 
three two bars in Colorado. If, any, if anyone doesn't know what that is, that meant like low alcoholic beer. They had a specific circuit of bars basically owned by Adolf Coors and sponsored by them to make more money off, you know, young kids. It's almost like flavored vape this day. It's just like, <laughs> and, uh, and so they had a whole circuit and we were uh, in a band. I was thinking about going to college at the time, senior in high school, freshman in college. And uh, we did stuff like Aerosmith, Ted Nugent, uh, Blue Oyster Cult, Leonard Skinnerd, uh, you know. Tell uh, me you did Wishbone Ash, too. Yeah, we did some Wishbone Ash. And then as soon as you play an original that you spent all your time learning, you would get pelted with uh, Coors light beer bottles and uh, people screaming at you to like, you know, play Skinnerd and uh, and oh, so yeah. and then you'd, you'd get off set and then you'd drink as much three, two beer as possible because that's probably the only pay you're going to get for the night. And then you'd come back and do a second set and try and introduce a couple more originals only to get bottled further by the patrons. And that was my start in music. Yeah, I was in Colorado in probably 1977. Wow. And did you record any of your originals or anything at all or not? Of course not. Why would... Why did we do that? I mean, it's just like we were there for like three, two beer and chicks. Yeah. Well, I'll say, I'll say this. If I'd known there was even one hard rock cover band in Colorado instead of nothing but Eagles, Dave Mason, Elton John, you that's name the, it. That's the thing. We actually started getting big because of that. Because we I never found out, or I would have been there if they'd let me in at under eighteen. Yeah, it was uh, Rainslayer, and eventually uh, they they shortened the name to Slayer in nineteen seventy eight. <laughs> and I, I I told Tom uh, about this before, and go, you owe me royalties, man. We were Slayer before you because it was like this Rainslayer. The bass player was like twenty six. The rest of us were like eighteen, and. Uh, and he had like this thing about like uh, your least favorite band. Yes, he wanted to do like Dungeons and Dragons and Elves and Rain. <laughs> and and we even learned a Yes song and stuff like that. I mean, it was like uh, it was pretty like progressive, but like with some standards in there of just like stuff that was top forty. And uh, and and then eventually we started getting known as like the hardest cover band around in Colorado. And so then he said that the 26. No wonder you never got booked in Boulder. No, we, we actually played Boulder one time and I, I can't remember where it wasn't at Tulagi's. No, um, not the skunk, skunk Creek Inn. It, it might've been that, I, but it was, we only played there once. And, uh, and it was funny because that was the only time where uh, the, the club owner told us we don't have to come back for the second set. <laughs> <laughs> so that was our big Boulder debut. Yeah, that, we, that never even happened with Dead Kennedys, that little thing. Anyways, okay. yeah, back in the day. So what prompted you to go back to Chicago? Uh, well, I got arrested for uh, <laughs> an accessory to a cocaine deal and uh, blah, blah, blah. I had some legal problems. And, uh, and Was I that in Greeley? 
Well, yeah, when I was in Greeley and then, uh, but I was, I was paying my tuition in Greeley by going on to Florida and being a mule for cocaine deals and coming back up and paying for my tuition and selling coke to the frat boys, <laughs> the frats. And eventually I got busted and had to leave college. And so I decided, well, I'll go back to where I grew up. And so I went there and then just started hanging out and, uh, in some of the fledgling punk clubs that were going on there, like, uh, O'Banions and, uh, well, Neos had just started. COD. And La Mer Vapeur, which was the ultimate, which I only got to go to once before the police burned it down. I got there once, and then about two weeks later, the police burned it down. Yeah, I'd never even heard of that place. La Mer Vapeur was, yeah, that was, yeah, that was about as punk rock as you can get. That, that looked like it was, like, right out of London at the time. <laughs> and 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 had you been to the Denver Wax Track store before you moved to Chicago? No, I'd never wow. been. Of course, I've been there since, and I, I know those folks. But uh, you know, uh, I, I was living up in the mountains, and you know where Frisco right, right. was. And uh, the only reason I was even down that night was because of all this stuff I'd read about this punk rock and anarchy and this and that, and the Ramones and blah, blah, blah. Usually I didn't go down to Denver that much, but I went to that one Ramones show because I'd heard like it was going to be really, really badass. And, and, and it wasn't, except it was in internally where I got to see like, okay, I, I think I could do this. Oh, yeah. That was the beauty for me. It was so powerful. It was so cool. It was scaring all the right people. Joey had basically one stage move and all I was good for was singing because I was no good with instruments and stuff. And and I thought, wow, anybody could do this. Right. I could do this. Right. Maybe I should do this. And the plotting began. Right. Well, so yeah, I didn't get I didn't get down to Denver that much per se. I know Boulder only because I was supposed to go there for a semester, but that's when I got arrested. Um, so I had to drop out there. And of course, I know uh, Greeley, which is where I transported my uh, cover band ass to all these different three two places out of Greeley while I was my freshman year in college to all these golden. We did Pueblo, uh, you know, uh, there's a place in Aurora. Uh, oh, God, where else? Uh, oh, like even even like uh, Evergreen, uh, we did, uh, I mean, just wherever they had like uh, Coors had established a underage drinking thing, we were right. there. Right, right, right. So, th so then to Chicago, um, it sounds like it wasn't that long before you were working at the wax track store there, or did that take a while? Well, yes and no. When it, when I first got there, uh, I, I basically worked at um, as a as a short order cook or a breakfast cook at places like Denny's. There's a place uh -huh. called Ojo's in Chicago, which was kind of like a mini chain that I was the breakfast cook and this and that blah blah blah. blah. Then uh, I started going out to the punk clubs at night and started hooking up with some people, which is where I hooked up with basically uh, uh, Frank Nardiello. Uh, Frank right. Of, uh, right. So 
and then of uh, later of my life of the Thrill Kill Cult, right? The Thrill Kill Cult, and then we, I joined his band, which was called Special Affect. The only reason I got into the band is they'd seen me enough uh, of, of the time at, at, at the punk bars, uh, mainly O'Banions, and uh, their guitar player Tom Hoffman broke his arm. And they had some gigs coming up, and so they needed a guitar player, and they heard that I played guitar, except that I had to cut my hair because I used to go to these punk clubs, and I had, like, hair down in my titties. And <laughs> they, they were not having that. Just like you said, it's like you felt empowered by saying – I felt emasculated when I shaved my head, but that that's what had to be done. So any, any pictures you see of me in special effect is, like, with this, like – kind of like military it's kind of like no a, i i've i've seen that live video from late in the band cuz you're not on any of their vinyl they had an album and a 7 no inch. i am i am on the vinyl i am oh. on the yeah I, that was my first thing i was ever in a studio with oh ever. okay was i don't this. remember seeing your name on the back at all yeah. but did you have a no, my name's on there and i played guitar on that for the whole thing and it was just the most hideous thing i've ever seen in my life was recording that record with our bass player's sugar daddy providing uh the funding and not knowing a thing about music like saying like i really want this band to sound like they sound live so i want no reverb no effects nothing oh i just my God. no it was horrible and i didn't know any better you know and and i just played my parts and just went like this sounds like shit. We don't sound like we do live. This sounds horrible. But this guy that was putting up the money was insistent that that's how you capture the sound of a band. And I was just like, uh, and, and that basically set me off on my production career was going like, this can't happen again. <laughs> Especially because there was all that reverb and everything else in the live shows anyway. There wasn't. Exactly. So he, it's like, well, why doesn't it sound like you guys sound like live? Well, because we're not in that room. We're in a we're in a room with literally like like wrestling mattresses on the wall, head <laughs> and everything, and no reverb, no anything, no room dimensions. You're just like playing, and then you're under the pressure. You're 18, 19 years old. You're under the pressure of like having to play things right. You're not, you know, experiencing anything or any kind of crowd interaction, and you're just you're just trying to make it right. It sounds so sterile. I mean, uh, yeah, it was like a, a birth control album. It was just... <laughs> and he's not talking about the German Krautrock band who did have their moments, at least to pothead me in the 70s and all. Yeah. But, uh, but I think part of that maybe as far as trying to get through to recording engineers what you needed to sound like was because a whole generation of engineers was trained to have everything as clean as possible. You're trying to make an Eagles record. You're trying to make a singer-songwriter record. Everything needs to be clean. So people like yourself and Geza X and even Craig Leon with that first Ramones record and all they were kind of stabbing in the dark, trying to reclaim the raunch of rock and roll back into the recording process. It just wasn't happening back then. Everything was about um, being as professional as you can. And I think part of it is because uh, I think rock music scared enough of the um, ruling class that they tried to tame it down and make it as professional as possible. Oh, yeah. Minimal 
of uh, you know mayhem as possible, not only musically, but everything. They clamp down on everything. Uh, outside of like the real famous, were allowed to get away with throwing TV sets out of windows and all that. But for the rest of the rockers, you better behave or you don't get paid. Oh, I know. It, it was basically what was. It's kind of the same way now. It's like if if you're you know uh, uh, Nicki Minaj or, or what are all these rap stars, the uh, Beyonce, this kind of, Justin Bieber, even you you can do anything. You can do anything, and it's okay. But if if you're trying to like make a living at this, you better be on your best behavior because we're not going to tolerate that from you unless you are guaranteed income for the corporation. That's the way it right. works. Still the same. Right. You're well, what we went through to me was why why the mid seventies before punk hit was so depressing. No more Stooges and Hawkwind split for a while. All these other things. So where else could you go but weird kraut rock and prog rock to find something new? But what we were being told was, you know, we were the tail end of the baby boomers. It's about adult rock now soft rock remember soft rock and we didn't want soft rock we wanted rock <laughs> and that's what that's what punk and yes post-punk and new wave and everything brought back and you know the lonely stooges fans moved to bigger towns and met other ones and presto yeah and here we are today and it's it's pretty much the same dynamic that we're we're having today it's just like Corporate control wants to make sure it's non-controversial unless you're already so big that you can get away with whatever you want and they will support it and give you even more money. Now, the, the, the paradox is, is to get to the point to where you're that big, you need to fucking rattle some cages, but they don't set up the system to where you can rattle some cages until you're already known. So how do you get known if you don't rattle cages? But how do you get known if, if the powers that be make sure you can't rattle cages because they want to make sure that it's really sedate and controllable. And if it's punk, it's going to be pop punk. Right. At this point. Yeah. There's, there's whole generations who thinks that what, what punk is. And to me, a lot of, I mean, I mean the, the ones that got really big, they got big cause they're talented and they're good, but then came the next batch and all the people sending demos into alternative tentacles, even who are trying for that. Cause that's what they think punk is. It's to be popular. It's to this do, 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 Whoa, whoa. And, boy yeah, girly when, stuff and, and came out when that stuff came out like things like buzzcocks and early wire and stuff that, that was good that was from the heart that wasn't oh yeah they weren't copying if they were copying anything they were taking an amalgam of things of like harmonies from the 50s and it, just like the stones did where they appropriated black music and, and put a white infusion of like you know uh industrial england in there and they made it their own sound all those early punk bands took so many things that were clever um, and melodic and all that, but they put it into their own spin. And and then what happens is then people just copy that spin without putting their own spin on it. They just copy that spin and think oh, yeah. that, that, that they're doing something new. Well, no, you need to put your stamp on it before, like, like a, Seriously, like you're, you're talking about all the, the tapes you got sent into alternative tentacles and all that. They, they just sounded like basically buscocks wannabes, most of them. 
You know what I'm well, saying? Well, later, of course, it was uh, no effects wannabes and other things. But I, I know what you're saying. I mean, I love the Buzzcocks. I love Husker Du. I love Fugazi. But any imitators of that, I smell it and I'm not there. And if the, the, the more poppy punk stuff to me sounds like the Eagles with loud guitars. And right. you, we all know our feeling about the Eagles having been put through all that in the 70s. The minute the Eagles with loud guitars hits out of my stereo, it goes. But the reason I still like combing through all the demos and things, at least that I get hard copies of so I can play it in my car. I don't have time to look at people's band camps, much to their annoyance. But Every once in a while, something really, really good. Do, do you pops know why? Up. Uh, do you know why I hate the Eagles as much as I? You, you hate them. That's clear. Oh I yeah, I've only hated them for probably fifteen years, twenty years. Twenty years is when I started hating the Eagles, and that's because Joe Walsh sold me the worst Coke I've ever had. It was apples, <laughs> and I didn't get high. And he was supposedly the big L.A. Coke dealer at the time. And uh, I was just like, dude, no, you just ripped me off. And uh, then I started re-listening to the, to the Eagles and realized, like, yes, this is rip-off music. You can't get <laughs> And as far as I know, Glenn Fry was a registered Republican the entire time. Of course he was. <laughs> I mean, the next up after you is Mojo Nixon, who, of course, came out with Don Henley Must Die, which Don Henley then publicly objected to. But, you know, don't ever let him get back with Glenn Fry. And then what happens? But not only does Don Henley object, which makes the song bigger, the next thing you know, the ultimate revenge on Mojo, and he really did get back with Glenn Fry. <laughs> yeah, whatever. I think, I think basically... That whole era is dead. And, and you know. Oh, it's making more money than ever, or those great big intellectual property buyers wouldn't be paying nine figures just for half of Neil Young's publishing. Jello, the, the new bands that are coming out do not sound like that. What I'm saying is that that genre is dead. It, to me, that's yacht rock. And I don't see that coming around for another 20 years or so. I'm sure it'll come back. It always does. But for right now, that's dead. You can rest assured. Now we need to start worrying ourselves with repetitive, bad rap music that keeps <laughs> coming around in circle. There was a point where it was cool. There was a point where it was ultra cool. Then there was a point where it was derivative. And now there's a point where it's just like, uh, like, for instance, uh, what's her name? Just got mad that they put her from rap into the pop category. Uh, somebody, some some girl, rapper girl was mad that she got put in pop. Yeah, like, but the, but that very tantrum is going to get more pop people to buy her stuff in addition to the rap people. Yeah, but but that, that's what it is. It's just pop, which is, to me is pablum or just like wallpaper or elevator music. And so she's put in that category. That, to me, is more telling of anything about the derivatives of that genre. They're in their dying stages, just yeah, like they, well, they, they, they don't come up with anything as fun as beer, steers, and queers, is what you're saying. <laughs> Something like That's that. a fun rap song. You had a hip-hop artist open a ministry tour about two or three tours ago. Yeah, a couple times. Who was before. that? Who was that? Well, uh, for instance, like on... on um, uh, what album was it? I think it was uh, 
Mine is a terrible thing to taste. We had a New York rapper do a, a song with us in in Chicago Track Studios, which you know we worked with with well, the that, rapper. That was K Light, yeah. K Light, and then and then also um, we had um, oh my god, just a couple years ago, and it, it went so well. It was so good yeah, because that's who that's who I'm wondering who that guy is. What's his name? Their message was so politically astute. Uh, yeah, it was perfect. That made sense to us. So uh, the the hey Liz, Lizzie, I'll, I'll think of the name. Uh, yeah, some, yeah, I, I I can't remember it, but I would I would say, you know I'd cite him as an example of what can still be done to make hip hop exciting, and we're we're well, soon. That's the machine is basically, you know, basically the same thing. A little bit more rock than than hip hop, but but still right. The message, right. These messages, uh, you know, they cross-pollinate. They do cross-pollinate. Of course. Of course. Oh, yeah. I mean, and then Ice-T going the other direction and starting body count because he had so much rock and he and even punk in him as well. Plus, he went to high school with Ernie and wanted to do something besides an occasional solo on uh, on his uh, big hip-hop stuff. And whatnot. Well, this, girl, this girl tried to kill me. That's Ernie. I like his original cross into um, cross pollinization of cultures and masses, but um, I'm not really involved in the like ice loves cocoa thing or whatever that's going on now. <laughs> I don't know that one. I mean, I, he has been on the on, he has been on the back of a box of Cheerios to work out with Coach. I you got to admit, I mean, I think we're both friends with him too. The man has never met a hustle he didn't like. Right. He'll go on, he'll be on Cheerios too. And I saw that even my mom cracked up because she knew a bit about him from the, you know, the cop killer days and stuff that he put me on one of his records before that. Well, well, cop I'll, killer, cop killer was the born to be wild of the nineties. Listen, all these folks, whether it's like, uh, ice tea having, uh, you know his SUV career, which is which is fine, or Snoop Dogg uh, with Martha Stewart and his whole like, you know, commercial. I didn't know that part with Martha Stewart. Or or, or uh, you know, a Vanilla Ice like doing a <laughs> home show or all. This is great. I'm happy for. That's because he failed at heavy metal. Right. Well, with Vanilla Ice. Not only failed at rap too, outside of one thing. And look. That's fine. Everyone needs to do what they have to do to to, to survive. It's just that um, I, for for people like you or me, that doesn't fit into my paradigm. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, and that doesn't make us better or worse. It just that's just not my cup of tea. So good on exactly. You. Good on you. All right, we're up to another quick break point, and even my bladder says so again. Coffee, calling, and all that. Wear you know, a diaper, dude, you should start wearing a <laughs> diaper on your podcast. You're new to this, right? You are. You're new to this. <laughs> Just put on some depends and come on, go through. I don't have. Are to- you wearing one right now? Well, okay, I admit I am, but uh, <laughs> that's why I'm able to plow through. 
Yeah, I I I mean I you know I'm toying with getting the big ones and keeping them under the seat of my car for traffic jams or whatever cuz uh you know both times today coming around I had to pull over, find a bush and get rid of it all and then make it the rest of the way to Anne Marie's and then go again. You know, it's not just that horrible Paul McCartney song that won't leave my head now that I am the same age you are, slightly oh. older by a few months. I don't know whether you have that constantly in your head or not. You know, will you still will need, you still me? need me? Will you still, will you still feed? <laughs> 60. I know. I yeah. didn't even think about that. When you texted me on my birthday, I immediately vomited in my mouth, realizing <laughs> we're at this age where we're being basically not only stereotyped, but ridiculed. And why does it have to be 64? I always thought 65 was the really cool statement when you started taking government checks acknowledging that you're too old to produce. Okay. Yeah, but neither of us are too old to produce because we're still basically immature and bratty as hell and we have ideas. Uh, yeah, and, you know, thank God for drugs. <laughs> well, that makes one of us, but I did a little way back when. Well, but meanwhile... But, hey, way back when. I'm not saying currently. Come on. Man. Right, right. I know, I know. The ways. But... Okay, I don't have depends, so maybe maybe your loving partner needs to change yours. I don't know, but uh, I need to change what's inside me, and then we will be right back. All right, and probably probably get back to Chicago. All right, all right, be right Same back. Minute. <laughs> All right, we're back again, and here's this masked man without the mask. Okay, now we are back in Chicago, and um, probably right around the time Dead Kennedys played CODs, which I think you saw. And meanwhile, Chicken versus the Egg, which came first? You were working at Wax Tracks or you were doing ministry? Which came first? No, ministry was first. I was a patron Uh of Wax Tracks. Uh, and and I had a four track, and I was renting a, a one bedroom with probably three roommates or something. You know, you know the look. Twenty years. Oh ago. yeah, oh yeah. And but I had a four track and some headphones and a couple guitar pedals and stuff, and and I started doing some songs. And I used to go in there to wax tracks to buy imports. You know, twelve inch imports. Right. Uh, so uh, and and I. I, I Vaguely got to know Jim and Danny, and also uh, Frankie from Thrill Cool Cult was working there as well. Oh, okay. I started getting to know those guys, and I just played them some of my demo tapes, and they were like, well, this is pretty good stuff. You should, you know, they they didn't even have a label yet, and they were thinking about starting a label, and they there's another band in, in the area called Strike Under that was... Yeah, really- we played with them around then at CODs, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, at CODs, right. So uh, they were starting to get uh, uh, fairly well-known, and as well as Naked Raygun, and, uh, and we were the up-and-comers, uh, as well as Steve Albini had just moved there at that point. So it's kind of like a little scene. We all went to, like, uh, the University of Illinois Circle campus, uh, so we were all kind of like college kids in the cafeteria, uh, all these different bands that wound up happening later, uh, all basically started at the cafeteria at, uh, UIC and, but and none but, of you were students but, but, there or all of you were, no, no, no all, all of us were students. 
uh, at least uh, the naked Reagan guys and and I was. Uh, I, I don't think Strike Under or Albini was. Uh, but at, at, at any rate, uh, Wax Tracks was like the mecca, the focal, the fulcrum point of of exchanging ideas and this and that, and people coming in and out. And so I I just dumped some tapes out there, and and literally not wanting to pursue a career or 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 even having fathoming that this could be a career just like oh this is just the kind of shit i work on you know in between my college classes and uh, i presented it to them just gave them a, a tape and they went like wow this is really good so uh at that point they they decided like they were going to do a label and and jim and danny structured up a, a set of releases starting with First of all, starting with Strike Under as a test case uh, with a song. Second of all, because Jim and Danny's um, um, uh, relationship with Divine, okay, Divine from Pink Flamingos and everything. Oh, I remember that well. That was that was Jim's excuse for not coming to his old customer Eric's band show at CODs was he was busy with Divine, who was right. also in town. Right. And Divine was the second release on Wax Tracks. And then we were the third. And in between, by the time I got to releasing Every Day is Halloween on Wax Tracks, Wax Tracks had set me up to play guitar for Divine on Divine's limited tour. So, <laughs> I never knew about that. Oh, no, there's there's pictures, there's video. Uh, they uh, Bernard J., uh, Divine's manager, said yeah you have the look you can play guitar in the band and we did born to be cheap and banana fana fo fama banana all that stuff and i was on guitar but they gave me like this pink les paul guitar that i had to play and uh i played at these things where you you did like the two songs and then divine just did her stand-up routine and you just had to sit there on stage smoke cigarettes and wait for it to be done and get ready to come in for like those songs. So I did like a limited. You only had two songs. Yeah, that was it. That's all we played on stage. And then, uh, and she'd do her stand up. And then, uh, then the third release on wax tracks was ministry, but because I was in divine and because I've been going to the shop the whole time, that's, that's how we got that together. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. I, I went to the shop to reconnect with Greg Pickett and Jim oh. and Danny and Mike Smythe and the rest. And, Den and, so yeah. And, and the strike under record had just come out and oh. the divine one was there too. So they sent me home with that as well as a bunch of stuff and garage rock originals. I found other use 45 bin and, other fun things and uh jim of course was jim talking a mile a minute selling what he liked to sell blah 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 but one of them it might have been danny and or greg pickett who they nicknamed moose from the denver days because of the size of his penis and he was just this mellow guy who you would never want to call moose but that's where it came from loved him we lost him to cancer early on unfortunately and we all miss him to this day yeah. however one of them 
they were talking about ministry, and I can't remember whether they'd already tried to get you. There was talk of getting ministry on a show with Dead Kennedys at City Gardens in Trenton, New Jersey, of all places. And then it got pulled because presumably Jim said that was not the right profile and the right band to be built. Bu- we don't want them built with Dead Kennedys, blah, 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 which I kind of understood after hearing the records. But then after seeing the live shows that are on that great documentary of that whole scene called Industrial Accident, I thought that actually would have been really cool. But back to the store. Um, one you, of know, them- you know, it's funny. You know who they did put us on with at Trenton, New Jersey, at City Gardens, the show that right. you, we were supposed to do with you was opening for Snakefinger. From the resident. That, I would have gone to that show. All them people parking their Trans Ams in the parking lot and stuff. You know, it was it was that Jersey audience who dot were not totally into punk. And John Stewart was the bartender back then. Anyway, but anyway, but one of them, I don't think I'd heard the the records, the ministry record hadn't come out yet, but they played me a cassette and they said, yeah, we're not going to release this. This was supposed to be the first single, but you ought to hear that. And I loved it. I was like, this is as good as any of my favorite stuff on 4AD. And of course, that was the original I'm Falling. And what was the other one? Life and... Uh, and over, Overkill was the... It was two songs. Oh. 1981, 82. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Overkill. And I believe the other one was I'm Falling, which is still my favorite ministry record from that period that I wish somebody would put out someday and stuff. We even did, tried to do Overkill again when we recorded Power of Lard and then it never got finished. But anyway... Still time, Jello. There's still time. Well, good because I've I've hit up Julia twice for that, but uh, not even on her. Let's just re-record it, and you sing <laughs> it this time, not me. You sing it. Well, we already tried that with uh, Overkill with different lyrics. If you still got the two inch, we can still finish it. Yeah, but um, we we got it. Let's do it. When we were when we were finishing Last Temptation of Reed, you said no, no, no. I don't want to do that song. I was just a kid then, but. Um, it, yeah, it's still now, now, uh, now, now that I'm so old. Now I'm like, yes, we need to do that song because I was a kid then. <laughs> good, good. Well, I'll, I'll I'll do it. You find it, I'll do it, and I'll have to find the lyrics. But I think I know where they are in the big fat lard envelope, along with all the Rita Rama cutouts and everything else. But okay, fast forward later so i knew there was good stuff there even if the arista album and other things like this isn't that good but we met in passing on the stairs going up to jim and danny's actual living quarters nice dude they want to make sure i met you and this that and the other and that happened two or three times then um i heard uh what was the last wax tracks one every day is halloween when you were back off of arista and made another wax tracks one i thought boy, this is still really, really good. This guy's so good at what he does. God, he sounds kind of like Christian Lunch. And then you forward a little bit past that, and um, the the Palehead 12-inch comes out. Right. And I'm like, and I'd heard Fire Engine, the song you did with Iggy, and yeah, I, I, I dubbed that off of the people at Wax Tracks and never came out. I thought, there's still this really rocking side to this guy, and it's really good when he does it. Then... Palehead came out. I think I got one of Maximum Rock and Roll's copies, 
And of course, it just blew me through the wall at how good it was. This has to be Al. This has to be Al. And then Revolting Cox came through and we hung out afterwards at length. And then next thing you know, of course, they, you know, I'm there trying to get get that kind of a sound for a Christian lunch album, which didn't prove feasible. Let's just make our own thing. And you were like, yeah, I want to do that all along. What should we call it? And I said, lard, and you fell on the floor laughing. So lard was born. <laughs> Yes, I do. So then, then we try to do lard. I'm staying at your house, and I noticed this seemingly maybe apolitical guy. This was by then I'd at least heard Land of Rape and Honey. I'm not sure it had come out yet, but this was all very life changing. Hadn't come out. Yeah, life changing for me, but it was in heavy rotation at your home, obviously, and. So I was really, really, really stoked and all that good stuff. But, you know, the lyrics and everything were kind of what they were. But then I noticed you were reading two newspapers a day, every day. And even if the lyrics didn't reflect it, you were really, really sharp about what was going on in world affairs. And eventually, of course, that began to creep into ministry when the first Bush seized power and you know new world order nwo it started it started with reagan really uh i started introducing it when i started realizing that like uh instead of just uh trying to come up with a concocted um paradigm for what a rock song is i mean you're young you're just like oh my god people are paying me money to write music and uh well i'll try and do something like somebody else or something like that and and like you said, I'm 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 very well aware of current events. But I was a I was a political science major in college, and and these are the things that just at weren't UNC up. or just in Illinois, or you were you were majoring in that in Greeley as well. In Greeley in Greeley, that was my minor. History was my major. Wow, Sci-Fi was my 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 minor. So uh, and then I started incorporating it with things when when Reagan uh, got in office on Twitch, but very very minimal because I was still over uh, the Arista influence of like record companies have absolute control over what you do and what you say. So I'm trying to work within that paradigm or that format. And then by Twitch, I started like, okay, me and Adrian Sherwood started dabbling a little bit with let's get off this like uh, hamster wheel. And then by rape and honey, it was full, full blown. And then from then on, of course, it took off into just basically what I see every day. Right. And and now you have a very political reputation, which it seemed like you were trying to stay away from that, as you say, when you were still kind of under the spell of wanting to please your second major label. Right. Exactly. Well, because um, that's where the money comes. That's what pays the rent. But then... At a, at a point in time, it's just like, okay, the rent's paid, so what's my excuse now? How about uh, my answer to them is my uh, middle finger and uh, basically obstinance and, uh, and, and being a thorn in their side because I got nothing to lose. My rent's paid. So, right. You know. And I have to ask and, and answer this any way you want. Did the kind of stuff I was spewing out first in Dead Kennedys and then in the studio with you in Lard have anything to do with kind of planting a bug in your ear or a little spur or a cockle bird down in your ankles to get more this way? 
Absolutely, Jello. Come on, you know that we've we've discussed this. He, he, just like the not fact- for other people though, just with ourselves. No, but this isn't ourselves. This is this is this no, is big, the sh- in, big inspiration, man. I mean, come on. It, it's like uh, to see you pull it off was I try was, uh, basically the the toll gate opened up and I could drive my car through. That was when you'd started driving again by then, too, right? You didn't for years. Well, yeah, I've had some mishaps, so I've had some things suspended and things like that. Yeah, but, the but one where you had the big I, crash. I, I, I was haven't on- had a parking ticket in 20 years, man. I'm, I'm like Mr. Safe Driver. I have the best insurance rates. Uh, I have no problem, but I also don't drive that much. But Right, do, right. I'm... I'm I'm very, you know, you just drove with me recently. Yeah, yeah. I was biting my nails the entire time. <laughs> I didn't, I was on good behavior that day. Yeah, you weren't used to how powerful that gas pedal was, I don't think. We're leaving the red light now. <laughs> Like, oh, my God, this is me having to do my driver ed test in high school on a Plymouth Fury when I grew up driving my dad's little Renault car, and then they made me drive that. But And just, just within the last week to 10 days, I was on that very road behind Rocky Flats between Golden and Boulder where your, your wipeout happened, where you didn't drive for a long time. And I think of you every time. Freaked me out. It was I was in a 1972 VW Bug Super Beetle with a little sunroof. I'll never. Forget oh my god! Because my my parents bought that for me as like kind of a carrot, uh, an incentive to go to college because I didn't. They want to bought go. you a VW. Bought a VW, and I said, "Fine, I'm done. I'll go." Uh, I went to Greeley with my VW, and then and then. My freshman year, I started playing in this Rain Slayer band. So right. we driving back from God knows what gig on that 3-2 circuit. And on the way back, uh, right outside of Rocky Flats Nuclear Plant, uh, a, a gigantic albino elk, deer, I don't know. I didn't count the points on its head or whatever, but it was albino. <laughs> it, was a, it was a stark white deer in the middle of the night. Ran across the road. I hit it. And, of course, VW has the engine in the rear, so the front was crushed. And uh, I had th- three other people in the car. I was oh, my driving. God. I didn't know that. And uh, and then we just kind of blacked out. It was a crazy thing. And then we all wound up in our beds. I was I was living at university dorms on, on University Street in Boulder at the time. Oh, my at the time so this was after actually after my freshman year in Greeley so then I was uh, I was uh, accept, uh, applied and accepted to Boulder but it was right before we started I was living at university townhouses and oh I, I know those there. yeah I don't remember what happened to my car or what happened it took me months to like kind of like piece together what happened but i know what happened now there was four of us in the car i've talked to all four people since they also have a loss of memory and we hit an albino deer and then somehow got to our places and don't know how i mean this is right out of that ancient aliens thing with the guy with the big hair 
that's going like loss of time, like what happened? Could it have been aliens? I don't know. But all I know is there was a goddamn big albino deer. That or we you hit. were so wasted you thought it was albino and maybe no. there wasn't even a deer there. No, I was so wasted I'm sure it was albino because okay. I don't think I would have noticed that if I wasn't that wasted that, oh my there God, you go. like a huge white deer that I just wiped my car out on. So, And then we woke up in our places the next day and I never saw that car again and I don't know what happened to it. So it was kind, kind of a weird ancient aliens thing, but... Either way, did you not start driving again till you ran out and bought those three cars with the money from uh, Psalm 69? Yeah, I didn't drive again after that until until then. And then I just got some money and went like, yeah, it's time to drive. So I just bought a bunch of cars and then (laughs) wrecked one of them on the way home. And uh, I think uh, the other one was a piece of shit. And one of them. Uh, I kept for a little while and just decided driving's not all it's made up to be. So it took me a while to drive again. Take I, the Ferrari away. Take it away. Took my Ferrari away. <laughs> it was the Supra you wiped out in Texas, right? That was the one yeah, that got totaled. Yeah, I, I had a mishap there with that one. But uh, it's all good. Nobody died. Nobody got too hurt. So, and no. Well, yeah. sp- speaking of. Fear of death here, back to the uh, world at large. We have a so-called election coming up, where even mainstream opinion polls are starting to say people are even more worried about democracy going away than the economy. Well, and then it depends. Today I woke up and they're saying, no, it's the economy, stupid, and it's not democracy. Suburban, this this Neolithic block that, that we keep getting told by um, social or mass media, social media even, about these Neolithic blocks. Like today I woke up and I read uh, in, in the news that, no, it's not about democracy is on, on the ballot. It's about inflation again. They just play you back and forth, this and that and the other. I'm, I'm with Michael Moore on this one. Um I, I, I got to say, I, I sense something different this time as opposed to the last two elections, including midterms. Um, Michael Moore, as you know, well know, predicted Trump would win. And he got a lot I of did sh- too. And he got a lot of shit for that. I, I didn't. I didn't. I, I thought like, no, can't be this stupid. You guys were right. And then the midterms. And then, you know, Biden, I, I, I was cautiously optimistic with that and still, you know, gnashing my teeth uh, right up till the next two days afterwards and and well before January 6th, although January 6th was predictable. But this one, I'm sorry, but I'm with Michael Moore. I think this is actually going to be, unlike what um, mainstream media makes it out to be of like this, oh, it could be this or it could be that or it's that. No, no. Uh, last time I checked, even with gerrymandering, uh, in, in many of these states, at least 17 states, have it to where the Democrats have to win literally 60% just to make 50%, as you know. True. I still think that this, I think we're going to hold the House, barely. 
because those are more local. It's not more nationally politicized. And because of gerrymandering, we've already lost a couple seats when we only have five seats to give up. But I, I, I really think that it, it's going to be close, but I think we're going to hold the House in the Senate. Uh, with these jokers that Trump has uh, propagated uh, on, on our collective consciousness, uh, I, I, I just can't see this, this current society in this country being that duped and that stupid to vote for some of the things that he has going. And that includes some of the like lieutenant governors and uh, um, uh, attorney generals of states and all this stuff. All the election deniers, I think. Uh, well, Secretary of State in the states is the most important of those offices. Right, exactly. But what I think is really about only a quarter of the Trump election deniers are, are, are going to come through. And I do think we're going to uh, not only maintain, but I think we're going to increase the Senate by about two to three um, that I see. And I think we're barely going to hold on to the House. And if that's the case... Thank God I don't have to move to Mexico. <laughs> or Cuba, for that matter. They might take you back. No, either there, though. No, no, no. I can't go there either. But well, Mexico's right. I, I, hope, I hope you're right. But the other things I factor in was this was what was supposed to happen, say, in 2016, if not 2014, but not just gerrymandering, not just Putin, but there's all kinds of other monkeying that has been going on as well. Plus, this time, I think we can expect January 6th people all armed and dangerous, hanging out at poll places in places like Georgia, Texas, Ohio, Florida, and just knowing that just standing there with their weapons, which they can openly carry, is going to scare a lot of people who maybe used to vote earlier, vote by mail, away. That's one part of it. But we are, we're also... I also think it establishes, like, an, an, you know, that they are not the Gestapo. They are a, 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 a loose band of uneducated heretics. I really think that it's actually what people don't, or what they underestimate is the um, kind of resolve that it puts into people that are tired of being pushed around. I, I think that there's an equitable um, force on that aspect as opposed to like the oppressive aspect of we're going to scare you and are not voting or not voting this way. I think there's an equal and opposite reaction going, you know what? Fuck you. And I think they're bringing out the fuck you in us to the point where I think they kind of cancel each other out. And then we just get down to like just normal thought, like what's better for you in the future? A person that, uh, you know, advocates these policies of like, you know, they own your uterus, they own your vote, they uh, whatever, or the common sense thing. And I think common sense will prevail. And I think the two extremes will cancel each other out. That's at least that's what I'm hoping. Well, you and I are both familiar with an ace muckraking journalist by the name of Greg Pallast, the one who exposed how W and Catherine Harris and the rest stole 2000 from and Bush. Brian Kemp. He's all on well, yeah. the no. Well, yeah. exa exactly, exactly. Many, there's many more of these besides Catherine Harris now. This, this, and this the fact that you can... 
you can still monkey with electronic voting machines to your heart's content. And they, it's way more organized. It's way more efficient. And even before Trump stole 2016, he had a movie, which was the same title of his book that it came out in 01 or 02, exposing how that election was stolen. And he exposed how Bush stole the second one in Ohio and Florida as well. He did not win the popular vote, let alone the electoral vote, and carried it in fight. But then we forward to 2016, he puts the movie out illustrating what was called the Interstate Crosscheck Program, concocted by that extreme right-wing wonderkind Chris Kobach. And that tipped all kinds of states, not just to Trump, but Senate races where Tea Party crackpots expected to lose, like Ron Johnson, Pat Toomey, Burr in North Carolina, you name it. They, they It tipped the Senate, too. What's happened to Kobach since then? Well, according to Greg... Crosscheck collapsed in well, 2018, in 2020. Right. So to Kobach so himself, this, this lie, which the media propagates, is falling apart fast. I, I, I really. Yes. Right now they have all, all the implements in order to do voter suppression as we've never seen before in our life. But there there it's like if it's we like, see it at all, it, it's against a rising tide because they don't have the numbers and people have Trump fatigue. People are tired of this shit. This is why Biden is not universally liked, obviously, but why the Democratic Party is going to prevail on this just on common sense. And in spite of all the gerrymandering, in spite of Chris Kobach and all this, this mayhem, Brian Kemp, here's the deal. Brian Kemp right now is ahead of Stacey Abrams, and he will win. I'm, I'm sorry to say I would be so surprised. And weirdly, he lost the last time except for cross-check and that stuff and gerrymandering. Right. If it weren't for that, Beto O'Rourke, Stacey right. Abrams, and Andrew Gillum all won big. Well, it's Andrew Instead, Gillum. Instead, you get DeSantis, you get you get right. the, the Trump Zs, T-R-U-M-P-Z-I-S. And Palast pointed out after he predicted what was going to happen with 29 states using cross-check to cancel out vote fraud by identifying matching names like Martinez, Gonzalez, Washington for African-Americans, throw everybody out. Not even within states, within the entire United States, that they're purging people. 29 states opted in, including Colorado, which didn't get tipped to Trump. However, the palace said afterwards that In states that Hillary supposedly lost, like North Carolina, by 15,000 votes, the exit polls, and he considers exit polls to be the real indication of what really happened, showed Hillary winning by about 70,000 votes and estimated that 7 million people nationwide lost their votes because of cross-check. And now all these people who shouldn't even be on the Supreme Court, it's a 5-4 majority now of justices who were put on there by presidents who weren't even elected. Right. And they six, know it. They know five, they don't four, belong there. Right. Five four on that, but it's six three in, in reality. And 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 the other thing is, yes, we we are up well, against the sixth Donald is Clarence Trump. Thomas. Well, yeah, because that's what I'm saying. He was appointed by Reagan and uh, uh, uh Daddy Bush and the 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 skids greased by a senator named Biden. Uh, but uh well, yeah, because he, he tore down uh Anita's 
a testimony and made his. And he wouldn't out. let any corroborating witnesses on. He voted yeah, against and, and to he, save his own ass, but let him get through. He was playing the across the aisles game back then, and uh, right. I think, I think he's kind of over that now, and he should be because he's going to be dead soon. So it's time to fucking fess up, Joe. Come on, Joe. Just like stick your fist up like you were with that old lifeguard in the 50s and kick some ass. You know, it's just like- well, I, I'm just hoping all the things he claimed he was for when he first took office and was getting compared to FDR. He proposed knowing full well most of it would go down as soon as McConnell got a hold of it. Right. But you know what? And for didn't really us, believe it, it in the first place. For us pot smokers, at least somebody finally took the first step. Obama didn't. Agreed. So let's at least give him that. Uh, and the rest of it, I think he's starting to see his own mortality. And he's just like, I got nothing to lose at this point. Let's just start doing what should have been right in the first place. Because he knows he was one of the main cogs in the wheel, uh, you know, stopping progression Back in the 70s. When and he the first godfather of the drug war, too. Exactly. Him and Clinton probably did more uh, on drug policy than the Republicans. They completely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so. oh, yeah. Remember his tantrum against John Ashcroft claiming he plagiarized the Patriot Act from one of Biden's own bills? Well, Biden has his own plagiarism problems, too. <laughs> of course. I guess he knows it when he sees it. He was just sticking up for uh, his brethren. <laughs> yeah. Well, Joe, the more you plagiarize FDR and Bernie Sanders and John Lewis at this point, the better. I mean, if they, if if either house goes down, and we can, and if one has to go down, it should be the house because otherwise, no judges get confirmed in the Senate until yeah. another right-wing extremist is in. The Senate is more important to the two for right. and, and, confirming and appointments and stuff. But, but the House, if the House goes down, which it's the odds are it will because it's such a slim margin, but you're right, the House, they don't confirm judges, which is what we keep needing to do because it's just been bastardized for so long under McConnell. But however, with the House going down, they're also going to, as typical... This new Republican Party overplays their hand on everything they do. So they get in. The House is is basically beholden to their local constituents. Their local constituents want lower drug prices, this and that, blah, 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 lower gas, blah, blah, blah. All the Republicans are going to do is revenge politics and Hunter Biden. And this and that. And might as well bring back Hillary and do Libya all over again. Might as well do this. And they're going to they're going to overplay their hand and show themselves to be inconsequential or incompetent and on being able to uh, basically govern. And and so, uh, yeah, go ahead and overplay your hand. Keep the Senate. The Senate is important. The Senate is important because one 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 Senate candidate who we are not hearing much about on the national radar screen, but a very engaged local in Louisville, Kentucky, who I've been in contact with, and yes, he's a musician as well, is insisting that Charles Booker has a genuine chance to knock off Rand Paul. What have you heard about this one, if anything? No, this is a new one on me. And of course, media is not covering him. Media is not even covering the neck and neck uh, race in North Carolina. 
uh, at all, which is neck and neck. Media is overplaying Rubio's hand in Florida with Val Demings seemingly down by four or five points. I don't believe that either. This one in, in Kentucky, this is a new one to me. Uh, Booker is a strong candidate. I just, they, he has no money coming in, nothing to, to, to do anything on the airwaves. So it's got to be a real like a uh, brick and mortar door to door kind of thing for him. And, and God bless him. I hope this works. But uh, I think, I think just Kentucky is just prone to like kooky people running their shit. I don't know, man. Like, well, the, 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 they have a, they have a democratic governor who may only be one term. I don't know. Isn't he governor Bashir? Wasn't that his name? Isn't that his name? And he got in because the previous governor, I think his name was Bevan, really overplayed his hand. Right. To the point where even Kentucky right. couldn't deal with him. And somehow Rand Paul doesn't do that for people there. Maybe. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. That's that's one area of the country that I'm not well versed in politics at all. Uh, you just kind of assume stuff. It's the same thing as West Virginia, though. And that whole area, I, I, I just don't know what to make of people. And I don't want to base my entire uh, you know, synopsis on, on an area of the country on J.D. Vance's hillbilly elegy. You know, it's like that's not that's not the way to get to know the populace. And we haven't played there. I haven't gotten to know any of the people there. So that's a difficult one for me to read. I do know North Carolina is more than winnable. I hope Booker makes some progress. But now, obviously, he's going up against Paul, whereas like if you remember um, what, what was the female candidate, McCready, McCreary. Oh, oh, Amy McGrath. And they were talking about running her a third time. Right. You know, the Albert Einstein thing of, you know, do, do, this, do the same, make the same mistake and expect a different result. But of course, she was the moderate, the one who was okay with the Clintons right. and the people well, who give us Biden and all that. Yeah, I know. Booker, I know Booker that. Not. And, you know, maybe it'll work, but I... I don't know if it's this election cycle. All I know is this election cycle is we need two Senate seats. And as far as what happens to the House, if we get it, great. We're going to advance a lot of policies. If and not, hopefully get great. a new speaker. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But if not, great, because then they're going to overplay their hands and they're going to show that the proverbial dog that sits there waiting for the FedEx truck chases it every day for years. They finally catch it and then they don't know what to do. They've caught the truck. What do I do? Do I bite the bumper? Do I attack the driver? I, I don't know. I've never been here before. It's what they're finding out with the Dobbs decision. They finally caught the car. Now what do right. we do? Now all they do is hide from that. Like, oh, well, I didn't mean to chase it all these years. Uh, no, that was kind of dumb, wasn't it? Uh, 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 or yeah. they're going so nuts. They're talking about tracking the cell phones of women in their own state to make sure they don't get go get out-of-state right. abortions. Right. The party. And this is going to happen in some states. They're, they're, government. The party of a oppressive government wants to track your iPhone to see if you've had an abortion own your fucking reproductive like system, your uterus and, and this and that. But they're the party of no government, this and that. This is what I'm saying. Their hypocrisy has finally caught up with them. They've railed and railed and railed and railed and did whatever they I could. I hope you're right. But the, the instruments they have in place to steal elections already 
right. has me worried too. That yes, it has me worried too. I mean, there's no reason we should only be gaining two Senate seats. If you look at at public opinion on policies that are presented, we are like sixty to seventy percent uh, on on the left side of of uh, issues than than the right. And like you know, everyone's saying like, okay, well, you know, they have gerrymandering. Well, we have marijuana, okay, <laughs> and we the- have sex. Put that on every fucking ballot, on every single state. You know, they should have been doing this years ago. There's only a few states that have that on, as well as like reproductive rights. Like California and Michigan have, you know, uh, those rights on the ballot, as Kansas did. So people will come out and vote. We should have had marijuana on 50 different states and had Republican senators answer to why they don't think this is a good idea. Both McConnell and Paul, Rand Paul, have endorsed legalizing cannabis to some degree because they see how much money it's going to make for rural Kentucky. And what's wrong with that? Nothing. That's great. great. But they don't certainly, McConnell doesn't definitely toot that as a Republican talking point. No, no, not even a libertarian one. But, But Democrats blew it by not saying... This is one of our talking points. Oh, this exactly. Week. Exactly. I, I have been wheezing and whining in my little spoken word shows for since last century that what the pro-choice people should be doing and the LGBTQ equality, marriage equality, everything should be doing would be putting all that time into constitutional amendments before the Supreme Court made them necessary and slowly get it through. Right, you want to bring out Citizens United. You want to bring out the vote. Put a put a sixty to seventy percent popularity wise amendment on your voting platform, and have the people come out just for one platform voting. This is what they're missing. It's just like people hate. I mean, no, none of the punditoids put it as bluntly as you just have, and I totally agree with what you're saying. I totally agree with what you're saying. You know, to use the use the ballot initiatives for things that people need, including reproductive rights and complete decriminalization of marijuana and possibly going on further from there and and let people vote straight. I, I think you're totally right. That, on that's that. what you need to do. That's what you need to spend your brick and mortar door to door, foot, you know, gumshoe, you know, door to door, knock, 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 knock. Get signatures on ballot initiatives that are popular with the people that bypass candidates and their cult and, and the media and all the like, uh, you know, uh, commercialism of involved in promoting that said candidate, just get the ballots on there. You get the ballots that are popular on there and that's what you need to be working. On. And you still need money for that. And I'm not sure normal or marijuana policy project has enough. And boy, have they been working on it for so long on the cannabis issue alone, not to mention reproductive rights. And maybe somebody like Emily's List, who's just fine with the Amy McGraths and Amy Klobuchar's of the world, should be putting that money into these into, you know, reproductive rights ballot initiatives instead of just, oh, this is a good candidate because she's a woman. They just love no, Feinstein. Not because she's example. a woman, because she's a woman who's moderate and will yeah. take, and you know, that that's all they care about. 
They, they want exactly. a moderate woman. They want a moderate thing. And and look, spend the money on ballot initiatives and and do the brick and mortar that way. And guess what? Some of these ballot initiatives. Okay, if you want to really be cynical about it, all, all these companies, like for instance, uh, the, the Anheuser Busch should be paying people to knock on doors to get marijuana on ballot initiatives because you don't think that they want to switch over towards legalized marijuana to where Anheuser-Busch can have pre-rolled joints in every liquor store. This is money for them. This is, this is what talks. As, you, as you, well as hemp people, beer. You get these people thinking that they're going to make money off a of ballot initiative. Man, you're golden. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the meantime, if they really do start trying to track women's cell phones in Missouri or Texas or whatever, maybe the thing to do is to have every single person who owns a cell phone in those states, male and female, all start claiming they had an abortion out of state at once and just clog them up and they can't keep track of everybody no matter how hard they try. Uh, why not? Civil disobedience comes in many ways. And with with the, the technological age that we're living in, there are so many different ways to throw a wrench into the system that hasn't even been thought of yet. And it, Leave it, it to the TikTok kids. They were the one who ruined Trump's big comeback rally in Tulsa. Yeah, BTS, all this shit that's coming with these kids. I, I just hope that they're also not just sheep followers just to be cool, that I hope that they're educated enough to realize that what they're doing makes sense as well as makes a difference. And it makes a difference. Right. Because people feel so helpless with climate collapse going on and prices being what they are, and you're not going to get your gas prices lowered because the oil companies don't want it to be. And of course, the the, the danger with what Greg Pallast is exposing, when I saw the movie version of Best Democracy Money Can Buy in San Francisco and thought, oh, my God, Trump has got this thing in the bag. When I walked out, other people were saying, well, now that I see how much they really are rigged and not the way Trump said they were, the really way they are rigged, the real vote fraud, I guess there's no point in even voting at all. Well, of course, you know and I know that you know, even if there's nothing but evil corporate cartoon characters on your ballot for senator or whatever, local elections and ballot initiatives are the reason to vote. You don't have people freaking out about pornography because somebody mentions a gay person, a children's book or critical race theory. If you pay attention to the school board elections, those people only get in because most people like us don't pay attention and don't vote in those elections. Right, And this is what the Republicans and the right wing have done so strategically smart for 20 years now between appellate judges and and state level elections the Democrats have completely ignored it and just went for the high profile things. And these are things that are of the utmost importance, even even more so than the general uh, national elections. I agree with that, Jello. That that is just something that that we the last just- time the the last time the Democratic upper crusties actually went local was when Howard Dean, those two elections that Howard Dean was the head of the campaign committee. And what do you know? They get both houses back in 2006 and Obama gets in in 2008. What is Howard Dean's reward? 
fired from that job because the Clintons didn't like him. Well, not only that, his reward is going down in infamy as the guy who yelled on camera. That was years earlier, though. That was years earlier. But he that what they needed to now. That's what he's known for. And it's like, well, also in in 20 and 20, what he did. And yet at the time, it was just so overblown by mainstream media. Like they fixated on that. Like, how could a Democratic candidate, which are generally just such soft liberals, be so passionate and yelling? And this is what he's known for. And that was his downfall. And that's well, it it came. It came. Their bias came. It came and went. But in 2018 and 2020, he asked for his old job back, and the Clintonoids and the Obamatons just said, no, 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 we want somebody like Tom Perez. No, 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 we want the current person, because they will concentrate on what on states we can already win, offices we can already win, while Howard Dean was like, no, if there's a good candidate running for county sheriff in Alabama, you help them out. That's what I like about Beto, man. Beto is just all about that. Let's just go there. You you want to talk policy? Okay. So I'm the right or the left wing commie hippie liberal. Let's talk about what's going to benefit your life. Okay, this is what Greg Abbott is is giving you. This is what I propose to give you. Do you like that? They always go, "Yes." This is what I propose to give you. And at the end of the day, they're all like, yes, I agree with all your policies, but you're going to let kids shit in litter boxes in school and, uh, (laughs) and, uh, you know, and, and, and transsexual athletes are going to, you know, just, just permeate every bathroom in the state and, and pee where the girls pee and this and that, and that, that's all, you know, because that's, that's what they've been conditioned to do. But if you actually give them the policies of what will help their lives, they have to go, yeah, that sounds cool. Well, that's what these Democrats have not done. They don't go door to door. They don't do the brick and mortar and go, look, okay, so I don't want people crapping in litter boxes in first grade either. Okay. I'm with you. Okay. But here's the other stuff that I got. I've got stuff That'll lower your medication cost every year. I've got all sorts of other great stuff that can actually happen. Your people are beholden to the people that are blocking these things. And let's not forget, let's not forget, more likely to help prevent your kid getting shot in school. Oh, let's not even get into gun control, man. I mean, this is the biggest scam of them all. The entire Second Amendment shit is a scam about a well-armed militia. Oh, I know. I know. The the NRA is now now just lobbies for gun companies, and they don't give a damn about being a sportsman's organization. We all know that one. Well, that's that's been going on 20, 25 years. But now it's to the point where it's ridiculous to where they're actually – Standing up, not only keeping, uh, you know, assault rifles on the streets, but they're actually they're actually putting money into advertising to bring back the machine gun. (laughs) Oh, they already have. It's already back. It's called an AR-15. Well, right. But I'm talking about an actual machine gun because they're going, well, we got the AR-15. Why not bring the, the the machine gun in, which would be a hot seller for Christmas? Because like all all the righties would be like, "Wow, we got the Air 15, but you're not cool unless you got the brand new one." And and I mean, literally, where does that stop? Bazookas? Isn't that what isn't that what bump weapons? stocks are for too? 
why don't we just legalize biohazard weapons? I mean, <laughs> why not? You know, well, I, I think we already have, and it's called any fast food restaurant you care to name. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be under the FDA. Okay, <laughs> but but I'm talking about, yeah, you know, why not be the first one on your block to have like an actual anthrax drone that, you know, <laughs> why not? You know, I oh, mean, yeah. you're right. Okay, we, we are almost at our two-hour mark here. So one last question. What's the future of ministry and your other projects? What are you up to? All right, I'm halfway through what probably will be either my last record or my ne next to last record. You've been uh, saying that for 15 years. You like yeah. making stuff. You'll never right. quit making stuff. No, no, no. But Jello, it's like 15 years ago, I was 15 years younger. I'm getting older. I don't need to do this stuff anymore. And unless if something you do really it because you love to, and it's what comes out of you, you're never going to stop making stuff. Yeah, but it may not be music. That's the thing. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of off into other directions now on like really looking at, no, I'm not Mark Zuckerberg with the metaverse and going to come out with a ministry fucking ocular thing or whatever. But I'm just saying that there's other things that, that don't involve around like a band and a tour and a promotion for the, for the album and a tour. And a, uh, there's different things to go. I'm in the middle of this record now, which I know, you know, because you're part of and, uh, and, and this record should be done by about uh, February, March, Marchish, and uh, and and then oh, we'll see. Good, I have a little more time to get my part done because oh, no, no, right now, part done by New Year's to keep on schedule. You got to. There get you it. go. I, I that I can do, but now I'm it's I'm further derailed. I'm further derailed from my own music by good things and bad things involving my other ex bandmates, as of course. But the good part is. Renegade Roundtable is here, and you're not my only guinea pig. Greg no. Palast, Mojo Nixon's coming, Mike Watt is coming, you Fred Armisen's coming, and many more. So you know I'm going to Greg's thing for... Yeah, you, yeah. You, have you seen the previews on his new movie? Um, we're going to look at that maybe even tonight. I haven't seen Dude, it yet. This, this is going to be like, this is what I was saying about, like, we were talking about voter suppression, what Brian Kemp did. You know he's like a pit bull when he gets when he gets on your calf with those Greg Palace jaws, he really brings it to light. And Brian Kemp is is from what I've seen on the previews like a big thing. I, I just wish that this would come out like a couple months ago before the. Oh, tell me about it. Like, I mean, uh, what Kemp is up to is getting Herschel Walker into that Senate seat. You know. Will you know, nutitude be damned? I, I think the opposite. I think what Kemp is up to is like loving the fact that Herschel Walker is crashing and burning because it makes him seem like the sensible one against Stacey. Oh boy! No, I'm oh serious. Oh boy! I really think that's his his like zeitgeist is is right. to like okay, he's the crazy one. At least Brian Kemp, I'm the normal one, and this new Greg Dallas <laughs> movie pretty much blows that out of the water. Yeah, well, I, he had he gragged about having 50,000 voter applications sitting on his desk before the last governor election he stole from Kate, Stacey Abrams and admitted, yeah, I'm not going to process these when he was well, secretary of state. And most of them were African-Americans and stuff. So so anyway, because we, we almost got to go here. Does the new ministry have a title? 
Hopium for the masses. I like it. I like it. And then uh, anything else besides that one? Is any more revolting cocks? Any more surgical meth machine? No, but there will be a lard record, Jello. if you'd ever quit being lazy. I'm not being lazy. I just now we actually agreed on what to use because I was already to go the last time and half of it got robbed back to put in the new ministry album. And that's your right. It's your music. You have every right to do what you want with it. We have enough to keep going forward. But we will do another Lord record. Yes. Um. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you, you you announce one every three or four years, and but and then people ask me, but I say, well, it would help if we played a note first, but this time there's actual tracks waiting right. for me and maybe more, especially right. if I bring in some too. So right. uh, there we go. You know. All right. right. So it, uh, that's going to come out probably after the next ministry album, I have a feeling, which is fine. It gives me more time to get the vocals and the lyrics finished and still get my own band back off the ground. There so, uh, all right. Honored as always. Thanks for helping me out with this and getting Ren Renegade Roundtable off the table in a good way instead of Nancy Pelosi declaring every last thing we want done off the table, one of her favorite phrases. And yes, she's my, in my district, claims she represents me. She does not. There, there is no shadow docket on Jello's podcast. We are here for you. Well, yeah, we are blunt. What you hear is what you get. Thanks for checking it out.